The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got, uh, those of you who have been listening in the last couple weeks know that this is an extension on on last week where we put out the call for feedback from listeners. Uh, specifically, we were going over, um, um, I don't know, I wouldn't call it an article necessarily, but I guess it it was in one form, uh, where uh, Wade Fow and Alan Roth were kind of going back and forth on their opinions on the best way to fund a uh, traditional spending plan, I'll call it. And by traditional, I mean it's very common in the financial planning world uh, for people in our position in professionals giving advice to recommend a a certain dollar amount per year, usually adjusted for inflation based on some type of withdrawal percentage that's deemed to be appropriate. And uh, but then there's you know a number of ways to deploy that concept, and they were going back and forth on that, and and we mentioned that uh, we didn't feel that uh, arguing about how to generate that fixed spending plan was really attacking the heart of the matter, um, which a recent article in our EDU show right before that we had talked about a Market Watch article where people. Uh, a couple where the wife, if you recall, was was really nervous about spending, wanted to put off fund spending for several years in order to protect their long term, uh, you know, the longevity risk uh, for later on. And the husband was the opposite, wanted to spend while they were young enough to do so. And um, our, you know, our position was essentially that having a fixed spending plan didn't really address the concerns of of that particular, uh, they weren't clients, those particular, uh, um, um, I guess, the people in the article, whatever you'd call those folks. And, uh, you know, we proposed our thoughts on that whole thing. And we uh, reiterated or reminded people what our concept was, where we've got this minimum dignity floor concept, where we want to see that, those most critical, essential expenses covered by secure income that you can rely on throughout the rest of your lives. That's kind of our attempt to address longevity risk with the most critical expenses. 
how we walk through a process with folks in order to arrive at their fund number, which is intended to be give comfort, I guess, to people who want to spend and want to know how much they can spend on the more, I hate to say frivolous, because that kind of diminishes the value of fund spending in your retirement, but the the, the non-essentials or the, the, the non-required expenses, sometimes called desired, or we call them fun expenses in our, in our office, uh, how much really is available to be purely discretionary spending in what we call uh, the fun number. And we you know, promoted or we continue to promote the idea that that goes, it's a more direct way, I think, of, of giving people permission to spend their own money when they know how much is available in that pool, it makes it a lot easier, I think, to budget for your for your fund spending, knowing that other more critical items have been, been addressed another way. And then at the end of last week's show, we kind of put out the call, Jim did specifically, to ask people kind of how are, how are they approaching these issues? We'd like to hear from our listeners. You, you probably are at least somewhat interested in our approach if you're a listener to the podcast. It's a unique approach. Um, but there's a lot of people out there kind of doing their own version of it. And we wanted to hear how people have taken kind of what we proposed out there, what they liked about it, maybe what they don't like about it, how they've modified it. And, and we promise to share their feedback with you on the show here. And, and that brings us to today. So, so Jim's got a whole bunch of feedback from people. I know that a lot of you have expressed interest in hearing what that feedback is. So uh, I haven't heard it all yet. I've heard a couple little tidbits that Jim has shared with me, but I'll be really interested to hear what some of the variations on our approach that people are using out there in in the real world, not in podcast land. And uh, yeah, long, long setup, I guess, but I had to kind of get people up to speed with where we are right now. And uh, now it's your turn, Jim. Wow. My turn for the rest of the show? Uh, sure. My, my throat's getting a little scratchy, so I can imagine you, you can take it from here. I think you spoke for five minutes. That's pretty good. It's like answering a social security question for you. Yeah, exactly. Just can't stop myself. You can't. No, but uh, good intro. Hopefully that brings everyone up to date. If not, listen to last week's show. And I have no idea how many pots are going to be in this series. How many shows are going to be in this series? I kind of well, it was only on the second one, but I'm, I'm intrigued with where it's going. We, we received many, many emails of people sharing with us their approach. Um, there's all sorts of different approaches. All you Vanguard VGs out there, because you're all so good. You get that. Even if you're not a, an engineer or with Vanguard, that's what a VG is, a Vanguard engineer, I call them. Uh, even if you're not a traditional VG, you may have your money at Fidelity or Schwab or, or some other place, and you may do a different thing for a job. You could be an attorney. You could be a mechanic. We had a mechanic once write to us. Um, you have that mindset. You have the mindset, the engineer's mindset of trying to plan your own retirement. Uh, Chris and I freely share our secret sauce with our listeners. We want you to be able, you know you're all do-it-yourselfers if you're listening to this show. We want you to just kind of say, hey, here's what these guys are doing. Let me, let me see if I like this approach. So we got a lot of feedback of how people have taken some of what they like about what we do, blended it with some of their own ideas, broke their, their expenses a little bit differently up, used different terms. Uh, it's just all sorts of, of interesting ideas that I hope to be able to share with people. We got some questions uh, uh, pertaining to uh, our approach and how 
do-it-yourselfers should be handling certain things. So we call that dialogue. So if you if you want to contribute to this series that we're doing, and I have no idea how many more we're going to do. It could be one more. It could be five more or more than five. Make sure in the subject line of your email, you, you differentiate it from a more traditional Q&A question that you might send to us or EDU suggestion that you may send to us. Put in the subject line dialogue. You put anything else after, but if I see the word dialogue, I know it's going to tie into this series. Uh, If you have something else like Social Security question, retirement question, IRA question, I know that this will be addressed, uh, but most likely after the series. So that's all I ask is you make it easy for me to keep track of those emails that want to be discussed in the dialogue. I cannot promise we're going to get to every email in uh, the dialogue. But uh, I'm going to try to get at least the better parts of a lot of them in. And it brings me to this first email. Because I thought, Chris, we need to add a little bit of clarity. That's what the dialogue is about. So this gentleman is writing to us about the concept of the fun number. And long-time listeners should know, new-time listeners, this is probably new to you, what fun number is. We, I don't think it's available on the platforms anymore, but we did a whole series on the fun number. I can't remember. It might have been this year or last year. I honestly can't remember. Do you, Chris? It was last year. Last it was, year. Uh, in the first quarter, I think, of, well, maybe it was last summer. I'm going to look it up while you're talking, and then okay. I'll tell people. But if you go to our uh, podcast's website, the Retirement and irashow.com on that website we have all our podcasts and you can search either i think by the year or date that chris is going to try to share with us uh, or by typing in keywords into the search box but you should be able to find the fun number series Uh, i would hope you could find it that was the idea of the website we're about to find out here (laughs) so yes um if you go to our site, uh, theretirementandiraratio.com, and then click on our past shows. There'll be a search box that comes up. And if you just type in fun space number, so two words, fun number, the first thing that comes up in the search is the fun number part one. And of course, then there's part two, three, four, etc. Looks like it was a four part series. Uh, yeah. Started in, um, January 11th of 2023. I guess it was this year. Wow, wow. feels like a long time ago. Yeah, I thought it was last year. But yeah, January of 2023, so early this year as we're recording this, we did a four-part series uh, weekly. All four of those shows are posted up. It's uh, If you're looking for it on the... That's recent enough. It should be on the, on the regular podcast services. And it's EDU show number 2302, which means it's the... We started as the second show in 2023 on the EDU side, of course, not the Q&A shows, but EDU 2302, uh, followed by 030405. Um, that's the fun number series. Uh, and, and actually, if we want to get the whole scoop, there's a prologue to discussing the fun number <laughs> as the first show of 2023, EDU 2301, where we, I guess, warned people we were about to do a four-part series on the fun number. So... 
There you go. Beginning of 2023 is where you'll find that. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to to those shows and listen Mm -hmm. to them, you'll get the concept of what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people see through their portfolio, whether you have saved half a million dollars or five million dollars for retirement. The concepts remain the same. How much of that money can you spend on fun? Well, in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to first promise the older you that their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care expenses will be taken care of. You know the whole concept of secure income to do that. In return, the older you will give you permission to spend on fun. And then if you follow that podcast series will explain how you come up with this concept we call the fun number. So we received this email, Chris, in reference to the fun number. And do keep in mind, and Chris briefly touched upon this on his intro, the whole idea of this dialogue came about with that uh, series we did, the two-part series with the question to market watch, where the woman wanted to wait five years before spending anything on fun until their social security turned on. They were 65. They wanted to wait. She wanted to wait five years because she was worried. Longevity was in their family and they would live a long time and need money. The husband, on the other hand, was saying, hey, we are young, quote unquote. We are early in our retirement. We have the money. We have the ability to spend it on fun things. The wife admitted he wasn't being extravagant in what he wanted to do. He just wanted to do them now. He didn't want to wait. This type of fear and uncertainty is very typical. This type of, that the wife is is experiencing, this type of um, Philosophical differences between married couples is also something we see a lot. One spouse wants to concentrate on one aspect. Another spouse wants to concentrate on a different aspect. There's a a disagreement. After we did that series, there was the Wade Fowle, Alan Roth, two very intelligent people in our industry. We're not have anything negative to say about either one of those two men. I envy them both. But they were discussing the best way to fund a spending strategy. They work with a client. Hypothetically, Wade, I don't think, works directly with clients. Alan does. Uh, But they were hypothetically saying if you had someone who had determined what they want to spend or what they can spend based on whichever measure, the 4% rule or guardrails or whatever type of rule you're going to use to establish how much per year you can spend from your portfolio, once that unknown has been calculated, how do you fund that spending? Wade was advocating funding it via uh, an invest or investment portfolio in equities and fixed indexed annuities. Allen was saying it should best be funded with a bond ladder, specifically a TIPS bond ladder, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. So those were the debate going on between the two of them. 
And I kept sitting there thinking, they're missing the boat here. They don't quite, in my opinion, understand the way many people, or at least many people who work with us, because if you're going to work with us, if our clients believe in the way we do it, or they wouldn't be working with us. But it just made sense to me as I created this, even though I wasn't retired myself, and I'm still around five to ten years from retirement, I knew I wanted to know how much can I spend on fun. I don't want to limit my fun to this amount every year, even though I have this whole big boat of money, because it just made sense to me to think, wait a minute. Some of my expenses are going to continue forever. I concede that. But fun does not go on forever. Now, people in their 80s and 90s still have fun. Don't get me wrong. My dad still has fun. No way near at 89 and his health, the fun he was having at 60, 50, 40 by any stretch. But he's still having fun. Same with my mom, also in her 80s, but just earlier in her 80s. They just don't do nearly what they used to do. And people would share that with me. Jim, How much? I, I want to enjoy myself. So I came up with the concept of the fun number. The safe withdrawal approach, or funding the safe withdrawal that, that Alan and, and Wade were, were discussing back and forth in their 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 little discussion on the the forum didn't answer, or at least in my opinion, address how much can you spend early in retirement when you still have the health, inclination, desire, and ability. That's the fun number. This person, Chris, picked up on the fun number and kind of has a bone to pick with it Hmm. in a friendly manner, not in a negative manner, but truly wondering a few things. And I don't think he quite understands what the fun number is and isn't. So he begins. This is a question or comment or dialogue from, and he gives his real name. I'll call him George. And he gives his hint, Chris. From the state where several blocks of millionaires' houses were dynamited and destroyed by local authorities. Recently? I have no idea. He didn't say. <laughs> Several blocks. Um, maybe I'm thinking somewhere where it was dangerous, like they weren't safe anymore, so they had to condemn them like on a, on a cliff or something. So I'm going to go with California. Yeah, it was California. I have no idea. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. But according to him, uh, he lives in Redlands, California. He didn't mm. say that that's where the actual dynamiting went on. Hmm. But I'm, I'm thinking the same thing, that they were uh, very weak houses because, you know, the cliffs of California are always falling. But would you dynamite them? That just seems so aggressive. Well, it's probably not safe to have. If they're really truly unsafe on the edge of a cliff, it's probably not safe for machinery. So yeah, maybe they did just blow them up and hope the water washed it away. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let's get to his question. Okay. More importantly... <laughs> In your fun number, you generally recommend spending 60% of the fun number 
in the first six to ten years of retirement. This sounds very pessimistic and not very conservative to me. I'm 72. My wife is 71. I have been retired, or we have been retired, for six years. We are nowhere done with our go-go years. We know the go-go years may stop at any time, suddenly and unexpectedly. But we have many friends who are in their late 70s, even early 80s, and a few in their early 90s who are just as active in their go-go years as we are in ours. Shouldn't we be planning on 20 years or more of go-go, especially for those who retire in their early 60s? Do you have any clients who have fully spent their fund number but still want to go-go? Or if they have totally spent all of their fun money, what will they now use for their slow-go and no-go fun? Maybe more money should be left in the market to grow during the first 10 years of retirement to provide more fun money for the second 10 years. This is just my two cents. So I thought that that email was good. Mm-hmm. Misses some of our point with the fun number, but does warrant a little bit of a discussion. When we come up with the fun number, so let's just randomly, folks, just choose some dollar amounts. Let's just say someone is retiring with $2 million of total net worth. For those of you who have more than $2 million, and for those of you who have substantially less than $2 million, forego the email saying, hey, I should have used a number with less. I should have used a number with more. I seem to always get that, Chris. I'm just randomly choosing a number. The concepts work the same, but I need numbers to give examples. Let's just say somebody had $2 million dollars. Uh, Social Security and a little bit of a pension and things of that nature. So their fund number, Chris, out of the two million uh, became one point two million. Fair enough. They have a one point two million dollar fund number. It took eight hundred thousand dollars to protect whatever minimum dignity mm-hmm. floor needed protection. Uh, their aging reserve. We won't get into. The nuance is just follow the numbers, folks. They had two. Now they got a fun number of 1.2. So far, so good, Chris? Sure. Okay. When we give, and let's just say, because he references people retiring in their 60s. He he retired, uh, I'm guessing, at about age 66, because he said six years ago, and he's 72 now. So let's just say he retired at 66, but the people in my example are retiring at 62, early 60s, as as he said. He's saying, hey, there could be 20 years of go-go. I don't know if this is coming down to um, vernacular here. I don't know if someone is going to have 20 full years. They very well may, and they'll spend fully on fun for 20 years on go-go. But that's not the point. The point is we tell that 62-year-old, here is your fund budget, $1.2 million. We should monitor this every year 
preferably no less than every three years to keep track and make sure all the assumptions that were made still apply. That's the first thing I want to make clear to this listener and to all listeners. Whether you believe in our approach or not, you should always review your approach on a regular basis. In my opinion, in a perfect world, it's reviewed annually. And for those of you who are do-it-yourselfers, you could easily do it annually. For those of you who utilize the services of an advisor, we acknowledge you may not want to pay a fee every year to have it just confirmed for all intents and purposes. So you can sometimes go every two or three years. I don't recommend more than three. uh, But again, that's a decision you would make uh, with us. uh, Our relationship with clients is a la carte. You will say, hey, you should update it every year. But if you don't want to, we don't force you to. Uh, And we do have people who update it annually. We have other people who update it every three years. It's totally up to the client. Well, let me, uh, I want to add a little to that because I have a lot of people that reach out to me that ask that exact question, should we update or not? And my question always to them, I want to make sure that an update is of value to them. And um, I think asking the question, what all has changed since then? is where you start. So if you want to consider that something you should do every year, absolutely. But if everything is tracking along, your expenses really haven't changed, your fundamental situation is the same, account balances are about what you expected, doing a full-blown update might not be necessary. Looking into one or two specific things might make sense, but doing a full-blown update, if you wanted to do one, that's one thing. But I don't know that uh, for a lot of people, a full-blown update um is necessarily worth it. But so, so I, but I think not burying your head in the sand for three years and then popping up and saying, well, maybe we should look at this looking at it every year to at least judge, are we pretty much tracking where we thought we'd be? And if the answer is yes, then an update is probably, you know, questionable as far as value goes. Okay. So conceptually, if this was a real person we were working with, we would say you have 1.2 million, you're 62 years old. Now, we would speak anecdotally just based on what we see in the office or what we may read in studies and things of that nature. But for most people, they start slowing down, going from the go-go phase to the slow-go phase in their early 70s. In fact, we once had an email, I'm thinking sometime this year, I don't remember exactly, It was post-COVID when travel started, and that's pretty much this year when it really started strongly post-COVID, but it could have been last year. And if you remember this, it was people who said pre-COVID, they traveled every single year and never had a problem. But because they took two years off, they noticed when they went back to traveling, they truly slowed down. They were not having Fun in the airports. They found it challenging and they listed all the reasons why. They felt their bodies couldn't keep pace and they were getting even more sore than they used to be. And they wrote to us for the podcast to share with listeners that going from go go to slow go is real. It happens. They felt because of the break in travel, which was their passion due to COVID, it made them really notice the change as opposed to if you had kept traveling all through, the change might have been so gradual you might not have noticed it. It just was very stark to them. 
and he wrote to us just to say, hey, I remember he even said, I think, something to the effect of he didn't feel he was going to be that one that slowed down. It's always going to be someone else. Remember, folks, that's always someone else. But it did happen to him. And this is something, there's no mathematical calculation that can be made to determine your go-go period shall last fill in the blank, right? right? It, it is an unknown. I think it's uh, uh, nuanced and you can, there's a difference between trying to identify what it really is and what you want to plan for. Remember what you're doing here is you're just planning for based on your current intentions and your understanding and your best guesses and all that, creating a plan that you're going to follow. It's not going to, the way you're going to predict precisely how it's going to roll out, but a plan that you're comfortable with is really the goal here with any of these planning opportunities. So with that 1.2 million, if they were a real person and they were meeting with us, here's how I would approach the concept listener, because he does say, hey, we've already been retired six years. We want to continue spending. What what if we had spent all of our go-go money in the first six years. And there was no money left. And I also was under the impression, based on what he, he wrote, that he felt, what if we had spent it all in the six years, the entire fund number, and there was nothing left? When we help someone determine, folks, what the fund number is, we don't limit it. And that's just a decision I made at the firm. We don't then tell people these dollars need to last the rest of your life and we're going to let you take X percent out. So just in case you get into your 90s, you still have some left. I don't believe in that. I think every person or every couple in this case are going to view their fund money differently. Our job as retirement planners is to help you see through, in my example, a $2 million portfolio and determine what in that portfolio can be spent essentially on discretionary items, what we call fun, and what part of that portfolio needs to be reserved and not spent because it's going to be needed to protect your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. Once we come up with the $1.2 million, when we ask people, how much of that do you want to spend on go-go, and what percent of that do you want for slow and no-go, it's really an investment question we are asking. We don't force someone to spend a certain amount of dollars in the first X number of years with X being what they feel their go-go phase is going to be. We're not going to hold a gun to their head and say, yep, you said you were going to spend out of your $1.2 million, you wanted to spend 800000 of it, making this number up again. On your go-go phase, get spending, you've got to spend this. Nor would we ever say to someone, if they spent through it, the other 400000 that's for your slow-go and no-go, and you told us that wasn't going to begin to 74, I'm just making this number up, and you're only 71, you can't spend it. 
That's not how strict we are. The fun number is a budget. It is a pool of money that is earmarked for non-discretionary, excuse me, for discretionary, nope. Yes. Yes, I had it right. For discretionary expenses. When we work with someone especially if they've also hired us for a convenience portfolio service, that's the service we offer. As you know, you all know our investment philosophy, our cap fee structure, all of this. We let people know, hey, here's, here's the numbers. If you work with us, and, and again, we're not accepting new retirement planning clients now, so this isn't a shout out to come hire us. You would get the whole breakdown, what you need for the minimum dignity floor delay period, post-minimum dignity floor uh, Delay period, post-delay, minimum dignity floor needs, aging reserve, guaranteed inheritance, buffer. You would get all those categories. You would get the dollar amounts, the risk capacity of those dollar amounts. You would get your fund number. And when it comes to the fund number, we would then help people break it into the go-go and the slow-go and no-go phase. That's the first thing I want to point out to this listener. There should be some dollars reserved for the slow and no-go phase, which generally for most people, maybe you're the anomaly and you have friends who are in their 90s still go-going. And that's amazing if they truly are bopping around an airport, flying on planes at age 90 like there's no tomorrow. Great. I hope I can do that. But for most people, they're not going to be able to do it. But irrespective, when I say it's an investment decision, What we tell our clients, and especially if we are helping them with a convenience portfolio to manage their money, dollars that we earmark for go-go, and we generally break it down as a percentage but on the show, but often people give us a pecuniary, which is a stated dollar amount. They give us a pecuniary amount, and they might say, out of my $1.2 million, I want to spend spend 800000 on fun, excuse me, on go-go. But they know already because I've explained to them, whatever you tell us is going to be in go-go, we want to protect not only from sequence of return risk, because you all know I am loath to ever hear that someone did not spend early in retirement on something fun that they wanted to do because Wall Street took those dollars away. That's not a good reason. I don't want to hear that. So sequence of return risk is important, yes. But I also don't want to hear from someone, I don't want to spend these dollars on fun Because I'm afraid. Because I'm emotional risk. I can't bring myself to spending it. By allowing them to see everything else, minimum dignity floor, the reserves, the aging, uh, the guaranteed inheritance, if that's important, my hope is people can see, wow, I really can spend these dollars on fun. So I need, as their advisor, to overcome sequence of return risk, yes, but also emotional risk. That's the whole concept here. So when we have 
go-go fund, that $1.2 million, we've got to invest it. We're not talking about leaving it in cash. But the dollars that are being earmarked for go-go, and we do believe most should be inv- spent, more than half, in my opinion, should be spent during the go-go phase. The time you tell us, six years, eight years, ten years, is just an estimate. Instead, we encourage people to keep looking at your total reserve amount that you have for fun, and you spend it as quickly or as slowly as you want. But those dollars, the 800000 in my example, if we were working with these people and helping them manage their assets, those dollars would be put in what we call principally protected risk capacity. In other words, I want to make sure those dollars are there. So from, yes, a sequence of return risk standpoint, Wall Street isn't taking those dollars away, but also from an emotional standpoint, especially if other dollars that have been invested for guaranteed inheritance or long-term minimum dignity floor needs well into their 80s and 90s, Monies that truly are not going to be needed for 20 plus years. If those dollars are down because there's a big market correction, I want to make sure my client from an emotional standpoint is not going to hold back spending on fun. So I need to sequester and visualize for the client, see through, see those dollars and show them These dollars are safe. They're not the ones that are down. That's what I mean by go-go. If you tell me, Jim, these are go-go dollars, we want to spend it initially, I want you to do that. Because when you get into your slow-go and no-go phase, which can happen as these people rightly acknowledge, suddenly and unexpectedly, and sadly I have seen it happen far too many times, Because it can happen at any time, I want people to feel comfortable spending those dollars. So we would position or invest go-go dollars dramatically different than slow-go and no-go dollars. We would put those in investments without any buffers, downside buffers or upside caps, without any use of MIGAs or individual bonds. I would put those in equities. Now, some people may be uncomfortable with all of it in equities, and they might choose to put a little bit of non-correlated asset in there, whether it's fixed income or some other type of asset. But that's another discussion. Slow go and no go, we try to get growth opportunities going on it. But go-go dollars, yes, we are going to develop a spending ladder for those. And we are going to encourage people to spend those dollars, but we don't require it. We structure the ladder to match what they share to us that we ask people at this phase of the planning process, in a good year, what is the maximum amount you could Theoretically, we're not telling you you have to, but in a perfect year, how much could you see you spending the most on fun? Some people have a, emotionally, you will have a limit. If you have a $1.2 million fund number, nobody's going to sit there and say, Jim, I'm going to spend a million of that in the first year. I've never heard that. 
but they might come back to me and say, out of my $800,000 fun number, gosh, Jim, in my go-go years, I don't think I would ever spend more than eighty, maybe $100,000 in a year. I'm just making this conversation up. But this is what we hear. And we're like, okay, perfect. You have $800,000 in here. We're going to create a spending ladder, making sure every year you will have at least $100,000 of that $800,000 completely liquid. No risk of getting it. It's going to be there. No risk of market loss. It will be completely liquid. No penalty to access it through an annuity or anything like that. Just liquid. And then we would form a spending ladder. And we might utilize in any given order individual bonds, whether they be treasuries or individual tips. We very rarely use individual corporates. You can if you're a do-it-yourselfer. Tied to when the bond, so we make sure it's a non-callable bond. We like to buy them at new issue. So we really look at five-year treasury notes, uh, things of that nature, or five-year tips. We could use those. We could use multi-year guaranteed annuities. We could use brokered CDs, either maturing at one, two, three, four, five years. It's not hard to make sure that every year $100,000 is completely liquid. It does not mean the remaining $700,000, if we're just setting this up, is not accessible to us. And if the client spent more than the 100000 which we would not sway them from not doing, I don't know if that made sense the way I worded it, but if you spent all 100000 nine months in, and it's now the 10th month, it's October, and you're saying, hey, I, I still want to do things, Jim, no problem. We've got other dollars in here. We'll get it for you. It's in your go-go. It's there. But we look at the go-go money not as a set dollar amount that you must spend in the first X number of years with X being however long you want your go-go phase to be. So for this person's question, I don't think he, if he had the fund number six years ago and he didn't because we were never even talking about it six years ago, you would have had a budget, in my example, $1.2 million, and you and your wife would have been spending from that budget. It's just, how do you invest that $1.2 million when you don't limit a client or you don't limit yourself to a stated dollar amount every year? Remember, this, this $100,000 spending ladder was hypothetical. We just asked clients, you're not locked into this, but we got to create something. That's just to get our investments going. But we don't tell our clients, oh, gee, you have a $1.2 million fund number and you can only spend 4% of it a year because you might need some of it in your 90s. We don't do that. We tell them you have $1.2 million that you can spend on fun. And my exact words to them often were when I used to do this. You can spend it all in year one like a drunk sailor on shore leave if you'd like. It'll be a hell of a good year, but you're not going to do it. And people would usually laugh and they get my point. 
This is your budget. So for that listener, you would have started six years ago, in my example, with $1.2 million. You would have started spending it. You hopefully would have put some in go-go for the principal protection to help for emotional risk. You would have had other dollars in the market. Whether you put 40% in go-go and 60 in slow and no, that simply means 40% principal protected, 60% with no type of principal protection. I just tend to favor to principally protect more of those dollars because fund spending, it's more of a factor of return of the money than return on the money. I have to come over, or overcome rather, emotional risk in addition to sequence of return risk. I don't know if this answers the listener's question directly. Has anyone ever with us fully spent their fund yet? No, no one has fully spent go-go and slow-go. In fact, we still see clients underspending on fun what they could. They still tend to spend less of it. Our job is to just try to get people to feel comfortable spending on fun. Anyways, anything you want to add to that, Chris? Well, his his specific question, he does have a point. If you spent through all your fun money by the time you were 72, you wouldn't have anything left for fun. And that that is true. That is true. But at, at no point are we saying everyone should try to do that or promote that as an approach. You, If you choose to do that, at least if you're following an approach similar to ours, you have compartmentalized that number, right? So you spend through that, and it's only been your fund dollars that you've affected and, and quote, run out of. You still have your other resources that are dedicated to the other things that you prioritize. So that's the good news. You've kind of kept that all separate. In reality, no one's going to drive that number to zero by 72 if they're healthy, uh, knowing they need to extend it. What the 62-year-old in particular in his example needs to know is how much reasonably in the most aggressive spending years I've got, which are for someone 62 is usually somewhere in the 10 to 12-year range. That is typical. If you, A lot of people retire later. They retired later because they're healthy and they're able to work longer, so everything kind of gets shifted. So you, if you go 10 years of go-go starting at 66, 67, you're going till almost 80 years old um, just naturally. Um, are you going to devise a plan where you hit zero on all your fun money by the end of that, you know, that arbitrary period? No, I don't think that would be prudent at all. But I think forging ahead on day one of retirement with this concept that, you know, we're going to put available to us, give ourselves permission to spend up to 60%, 70%, whatever the percentage is you want to put on it in the go-go years, which we anticipate is going to be at least 10 or 12 or whatever. These are going to be some assumptions you need to put on your own circumstances. That then gives you, I guess, visibility on what you're dealing with. And then you monitor as things go. If things start draining faster than you thought, you want to identify that before you drain it to zero and suddenly wake up and realize, oh my gosh, we just got a little out of control here. Uh, and we, we spent quicker through this money than we anticipated. You don't just forge ahead with the plan from day one without looking at it and monitoring it and updating it, but you've got to have something to start with 
to, to take your first steps of retirement and book that first trip and do that first new set of hobbies and, you know, these experiences that you've got kind of built up waiting for retirement. Um, and we just promote this, what we believe to be a reasonable way to identify what's potential and address the fears that most people have with the other areas of retirement so that they can give themselves permission to, to do this. Right. A couple other things I wanted to add on this, uh, because clearly we're going to be doing many, many more shows. Um, I wanted to get to an article today, and I'm not going to because we don't have enough time. So I'm going to get to another email instead. But the article we wanted to get to, I'm just going to read the beginning. We will get to this article on the next EDU show. A listener sent it specifically for this uh, discussion we're having. I'm just going to read the beginning. And this is from uh, the Washington Post, and it's from a reporter who's actually the personal finance reporter for the Washington Post. She's still working, but her husband retired. My husband and I are fortunate. We have enough for retirement. But ever since he retired the end of June, I have felt a sleep-depriving dread. I worry we will outlive our money. We're going to read that article Next week, and we're going to tie it in again to our approach. A listener sent that to me. He said, hey, with this series you're doing, here's my dialogue. And essentially, check out this article. What I'm getting at, and the only reason I read the beginning, that's what we're trying to overcome. People who initially retire, they're afraid to spend money, especially on expenses, that are discretionary in nature. They don't have to do it. You don't have to travel. I don't have to go fishing or elk hunting or hiking, the things I like to do, or visit Florida, something I'm getting more and more interested in doing in the wintertime. Not so much with a major hurricane coming in. For our listeners in Florida, uh, I hope you made it through the, the hurricane. By the time you hear this, uh, the hurricane will have hit. I want to be able to know what I can spend on fun. And when I retire, whether it's in five or 10 years, yes, it's going to freak me out. I'm not immune to it. But I will have everything in place that I am not going to bat an eyebrow going through and spending my fun. Because I've done my homework, I've positioned everything, I have my secure income in place, I'm doing the protections. This is what I can spend on fun. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to pace myself. And that's my answer to this listener. We would have encouraged you to pace yourself. Remember I began this by saying you should update your plan every one year, preferably, as Chris rightly pointed out, it's not totally necessary, to maybe three years maximum. What's one of the benefits of updating it? Well, to look at all the reserves, minimum dignity floor, delay and post-delay reserve, aging reserve, guaranteed inheritance reserve, and buffer reserve. Are those reserves still meaningful enough in size to accomplish what you need? Or are they too low? Or are they too high? Now, we all know eventually stocks generally go up. 
And they have been this year, but last year they were down. It's not the end of the world when they're down. Generally speaking, you all know that. You, you guys are all into investing, if you're listening to this. More times than not, stocks are going up. Eventually, those reserves may get more than what you truly need. So, in answer to this listener, you would pull some of those dollars and move it to fun. Now, if the reserves were not enough, that's the buffer. The buffer is the lineman that stands between life, or what I call reality, and your fun spending. So if some of the reserves are not keeping pace or things are changing in your life and you need more somewhere, you would get it from the reserve first and not necessarily your fun. So there are those protections built in, listener. The other thing I'll add that I was thinking as you read through his concerns and him pointing out he had friends maybe even in their 90s that were still what he would consider go-go, very active. I would say in a case like that, if you've done these, this idea of these reserves and protection for later in life and they've reached the later in life phase, if you're still go-go, you've been very healthy. You haven't obviously needed to tap a lot of those reserves that are in place for you to age and need aging care and all this kind of stuff. And you're likely to find that those reserves now are quite healthy that you set aside when you're in your 60s and now you're 90 and active and just like Jim is mentioning right now, you assess this and watch this. And some of these reserves that were technically meant for other things, if you are healthy enough to get some of this stuff extended, you could scrape some of that over. And again, if you're a 92-year-old go-go person, you're healthy. Otherwise, you can't be go-go, right? So, so if you had 30 years of growth on the reserves for the in case I'm not very healthy, um, I would bet you'd, got, you'd be able to identify some dollars to embellish what uh, you had previously reserved where you thought it was no-go and you're going to be more active than that. Right. And I'll just wrap this up, listener, by saying... For every person like you and your wife, or persons like you, your wife, and your friends, there's just as many persons who don't have the ability to spend on fun anymore. And unfortunately, are Debbie Downers, as my father called them when he lived in the retirement community. Those people who never did what they wanted to do in life when they had the ability to do it and the money to do it and now regret it. He said they were just incredibly unhappy people to be around because they always were complaining. I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done that. Because I sadly, far too many times that I care to remember, had to deal with clients dying quite unexpectedly early in retirement or developing conditions That, as you rightly pointed out, suddenly and unexpectedly brought them from go-go to no-go. They're not dead, but they're just not doing anything anymore. Regrets will last the rest of their lifetime. It's it's, it's It's a fine line, I freely admit it. But it's not a set it and forget it. Here's your 1.2 million in the example I have been using, fun number. You don't have to look at this anymore. Go have fun. It's watching it. It's adjusting it. 
It's controlling. You've got a budget. You spend it as fast as you want. You just are going to control it. We do that with our money during our working years. I have X amount of dollars in my checking account right now. I don't have to give you the exact amount, but it's a pretty good amount of money. I'm not going out and and needlessly spending it. I'm pacing it. Mm-hmm. I pace myself when I half walk, half jog, called jolking around a lake, and I'm pacing the spending on those dollars because I do want to make them last until I'm going to fill it again. It's a little different, the analogy, because I'm not retired in the example I'm giving, but all through our lives, we've taught ourselves to pace. Now, there's some people who can't. You, you, you put 50 bucks in their hand and it's gone before you even turn around. But a lot of people can pace, and that's what fun number is meant. This is your budget, and you're going to revisit it. And if you have a meaningful enough buffer, you've got some good linemen in front of it to hopefully allow you to feel comfortable spending it, because if there's a shortage somewhere, your buffer steps in first. But there's nothing perfect. Yes, you could go through your buffer and then boom, all of a sudden there's not enough money to do the rest of your fun and what you need for non-discretionary items. Well, at that point, your life has changed. We are changing. We're going through the last third of our life and we know how it ends. Okay, I know we got to wrap up, but we got one guy here. Just he wanted to share with us how he does it. He follows what we do, Chris, except he doesn't use any type of secure income beyond, I guess, what he has. But he just explains what he does. He wanted us to share it. So I'm going to share it. That's what the dialogue is about. He says, you can call me George. I live in the state famous for their apples. Uh, He did not give the answer, and I'm sure there's many states that feel they are famous for their apples. First thing that comes to my mind is Washington, but I have no idea if I'm right or not. He doesn't say. So I'm guessing Washington. You listeners can guess anything you want. I have no idea what state is famous for their apples. Do you want to take a pick a state? I would guess Washington as well, but... okay. Well, so I have no idea, listener, if you're from Washington or not. He says, Dear Jim and Chris, thank you for the fabulous show. have been following for over a year now, and I have been recommending it to others. I am even trying to write about your approach to retirement in Chinese and hopefully get it published in a prominent Chinese newspaper. Seriously? Yeah, you think I'm making that part up? Just a very interesting comment. If you would like any of my euphemisms, like beat that horse to death or taking candy, uh, pulling teeth from a baby, uh, what else do I say? Those probably don't translate into any other language. Let me know how to say those in Chinese. (laughs) And uh, I will practice on the show. Anyways, he continues. I plan to combine your approach with Christine Benz's bucket approach. I have no idea who Christine Benz is. Bucket approach to fund my distribution. I will begin by doing the calculation for my fund number. I'll determine my minimum dignity floor, my buffer, my long-term care, etc. So the only thing that he's really missing on that would be the guaranteed inheritance. Uh, and then what we call the quote-unquote other category. Some people have other items they want to cover. I think that covers everything, didn't he, Chris? Probably. 
that was your cue to say yes, but that's yes. okay. Okay. He said, then I will allocate those dollars to each year I will need them. So I will have a rough annual budget that covers all of the dollars I need, including the expected go-go and slow-go years. Then I will put 110% of those dollar amounts for each year from year one through year six. So he's putting a little extra. He's, he's taking what his minimum dignity floor needs are, folks. He's coming down with his fund number. He's going to add up what he thinks he's going to spend each year on minimum dignity floor. He's kind of giving himself a fund budget, similar to what we said. He's going to break it into six different, if I understand him correctly, six different years and put 110% of what he thinks he's going to need in each year, giving him a little bit of protection, and all the other dollars he is going to invest. And he gives me the names of the investments, but we're not going to, to name them. I will adjust my actual spending based on the returns of the assets. I am. Then he gets into his... I don't want to mention the investments because we don't do that on this podcast. So he said... Before spending from those buckets, I will spend the income from the portfolio first. So that tells me, folks, he's not going to be reinvesting, especially the longer term dollars, year seven and beyond. I'm under the impression he's going to take the income from those, spend that first, and then the buckets I think what I, if I understand him correctly, Chris, I think he's trying to explain to us listeners, he's building in some protections. Mm -hmm. For the first six years, he's going to combine his minimum dignity floor and his fund Mm -hmm. and then put 110% in. The rest gets invested in all equities. And he is going to spend the income first, I'm guessing, from the investment side. And then from the buckets to give him an even second layer of protection. Do you think I have that part right? I think so. I probably have to hear the rest of the story unless that's it. Well, I think that's about it. He said that's what he's going to do. Um, I will spend the income from the portfolio first, then sell whatever has been going up to keep refilling my annual spending. So I think he's going to try to maintain a six-year ladder on this. And as one of his spending buckets goes, he's going to replenish the next five years out to keep that, or six years out, to keep that ladder going. And he's going to do it by selling from his investment pool anything that has risen. He wants to know, in short, what do we all think of this? I have no problem with it. I'm not here to say it's right or wrong. I'm just here to say it's a little complicated. And it may work for you now. Just be prepared that as you age, you may not want to do it this way. Or it may be hard for someone to step in and assist you with all of this. So have it well laid out. And honestly, it's not truly protected. It doesn't reach our uh, preference, which is your minimum dignity floor, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, are fully covered with lifetime guaranteed secure income. Because 
people writing these, uh, not writing to us, but people in these articles, the one that I will reference uh, next week and the one that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, some of the overriding fear is outliving their money. That fear exists. Yes, we think it's sometimes oversold as a way to get you to hire financial advisors, but it also exists for a very real reason. It does happen to some people. And we just feel minimum dignity floor shouldn't be left to a withdrawal strategy or a bucketing strategy. You're kind of using our way of coming up with the fun number, but you're going to fund it with a bucketing strategy, which doesn't have that explicit promise to the older you that no matter what happens, your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses will be fully covered. So outside of that caveat, I have no uh, other comments about your approach. I do think it's a little bit more complex than our approach, and it doesn't have that explicit promise that your minimum dignity floor, at the very least, will be protected. And I guess a third issue I would point out, but again, if it works for you, that is great. You're still limiting yourself to a budget on fun. And I have an issue with that. If you ever got to the point where you say, oh, no, it's 2023. I, it's not much more money left. I'm going to wait till next year to do that fun thing. I'm going to hold off doing whatever it is because next year may never come or if it comes, you might not be able to do it. Anything that you want to add that you picked up on it? Yeah, I think an you know, alternative funding method for the minimum dignity floor certainly can work for some people. There are people that have so many resources that the threat of not having enough money to cover their minimum dignity floor, if they make it to 95, 100, 105, 110, is not really a worry. But I'm shocked, actually, at the number of people that even are in that situation that are still nervous about running out of money. So sometimes, even though academically, it's not likely very, very low chance that a person could run out if they have enough resources to start their retirement, there's something elegantly simple about pointing to the secure income floor that hopefully is large enough to cover any anticipated minimum dignity floor expenses. And then you kind of check that box off emotionally in your brain about having to worry about it. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, there's nothing that's a comp that's so hundred percent guaranteed in life that it's technically zero, but we're, we're going to push the chance of something going wrong as close to zero as possible. And we're going to rely on others, you know, other reliable sources of guaranteeing to us, in the form of you know, social security, pension income, income annuities, if one has them. Um, and, and it just, I guess, be careful. And, and uh, that I appreciate Jim's comment about the complexity. I am a little worried about that when you come up with a custom approach that uh, if you decline or something happens to you and your spouse is still around and you have this uh, particular strategy that's working, someone else trying to deploy it might not do it as well as you do because they're misinterpreting how it works or what have you, or they might charge you an arm and a leg because it's so custom and one-off that as they you know try to take it over and implement it, it's uh, not efficient. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd put an 
put some thought into that, how you're going to transition if you are unable to do it anymore, unwilling to do it anymore, or not around to actually do it anymore. What, what's the backup plan is always a good thing to have. Okay, but that's kind of what we were hoping to get, folks. Just a little bit of mm-hmm. dialogue, food for thought, mm-hmm. just for us to chat. There's no right or wrong approach. This is more of the art of retirement planning. Again, retirement planning is a subset of financial planning, and financial planning is known as part art, part science. We're not really getting into the science aspect. We're getting into the art aspect. There's many, many ways to skin a cat, and mm-hmm. there's many, many ways to project a retirement. Oz is just one of many. We prefer Oz, obviously. We want to hear from you what you all are doing, what you like about our approach, what you don't, if you want to point that out, if you have any questions about our approach, or if you just kind of like your approach and you want us to try to share it on the podcast, we'd be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just put dialogue in the subject line. And I have no idea how long these, these shows will go on. A couple more probably. I do want to get to that article from the uh, Washington Post personal finance writer. I thought it was really compelling hearing her uh, her opinion of retirement. And thank you for the listener who sent that to me. And uh, just give us some more food for thought. That's all we want to do. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a chat session with you guys, giving you guys food for thought. Y'all are do-it-yourself Vanguard VGs or wherever you are, but you're a VG. And we we want to kind of help you, and that's all what we're trying to do on these mm-hmm. these series. Yeah, and send those uh, that feedback directly to Jim Jim at jimhelps dot com is his email address. That's Jim H E L P S dot com, and uh, look forward to hearing them. I know we got a whole bunch more already, but I'd love you know you have the opportunity now over the coming shows, the coming weeks to send in your thoughts, and we'd love to. Uh, take a look at those and maybe share them with our wider audience on the show here. So We probably won't get to them mm-hmm. all, but True. send them in anyways and we'll try mm-hmm. our best. Yeah. So we really appreciate everybody uh, listening and contributing and we'll be back next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 